What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. When I work with my college students to research and write papers, one of the things we focus on is how to use evidence. Writing so you effectively use evidence to back up claims and to make convincing points is very important when it comes to the types of writing my students do. But it's also pretty significant for all writers. And in fact, most writing standards for children call for writers to be able to use relevant and sufficient evidence. One of the biggest challenges writers face in using evidence is being able to deal with contrary evidence. In most cases, the writers I work with are able to use evidence as long as it agrees with their position or stance. The problem comes when they have to use evidence that contradicts what they believe. However, being able to write well, especially when we are trying to argue for a position or issue, means that we need to be able to deal with both confirming and contradictory evidence. This kind of writing applies critical thinking skills by encouraging writers to look beyond their own biases to see how others think. I'll admit this is really hard, because as human beings, we often fall prey to confirmation bias, meaning we look for or interpret data in a way that supports our beliefs. Our natural inclination to confirmation bias is one of the things that makes fake news or manipulative advertising possible. So teaching students to look critically at evidence is not only necessary for writing, but also for general literacy that makes us savvy media consumers. While the whole process of how to teach writers to use evidence is something we can't cover here in our brief moments together at Rachel's World, I will say that some simple ways to start are to have children read good examples of persuasive writing. Then a great way to start engaging with writing with evidence is to find real-world examples of ways they can write. Try writing up an argument for why the family should get a new pet, with special focus on the evidence and arguments against such an addition to the family. This is also a great time to connect to the strategies and work children are already doing during their school day, because we know that being able to construct a good evidence-based argument is going to be a really important skill for kids to learn. Let's say you're the proud owner of a stuffed bear, and let's say it can talk. What would it say? Children's book author and illustrator, Laura Vaccaro Seeger, tells us about her stuffed bear, along with her very much alive pet dachshund. These two animals became the leading characters in her popular book series, Dog and Bear. Seeger is a New York Times best-selling author and illustrator and recipient of multiple awards, including the Caldecott Honor Award and the Theodore Seuss Geisel Honor Award. Here's Jessica with Laura Vaccaro Seeger. We're here today with Laura Vaccaro Seeger. Laura, thank you so much for spending the time to talk with me today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, You know, last time that we spoke, uh, we were at the Books for Young Readers Conference, and I just loved everything about your presentation and and your personality, and your books are so much fun. So it truly is a delight to get to pick your brain a bit today. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks. 
I guess what I'm really curious about is your process for making these beautiful picture books. What is what is your approach when you're starting a new project? Well, it's it's kind of funny because it's it's sort of organic. Like it it mm-hmm. it isn't um uh it isn't it isn't like it's kind of like a, ideas sort of come in into my head while I'm working on other books usually and they and they sort of you know, I just sort of ruminate on them while I'm working on other things. And then as I'm getting closer to finishing whatever I'm working on, I, I'm usually kind of working on more than one thing at a time, but concentrating on whatever's due at the moment. And uh, so when so when I complete a book that's due and, and start to, you know, kind of by then I've figured out what's next and I have ruminated on it enough to, you know, have decided that this is, going to, you know, has the potential to be something, then I just spend a ton of time just kind of thinking about it. It's funny because I, I, I feel like so much of the work actually just happens in, in the head. And then, you know, uh, by that time, too, I've kind of gotten the, the basic structure of the writing done. And um, so the, the the space between the writing and the art for me is um, it's just a lot of head space. Like I just think about, I'll try to envision what it looks like, and I'll write the stories, which usually, um, or, or you know, whatever whatever the text is, if it's more of a conceptual book. There's always a story mm-hmm. element in it, even if it is conceptual. But I'll write it out, and it's usually quite a bit longer than it ends up being in the book. And and then as I'm making the book, I'll you know I'll be like, okay, I don't need these words for. I'll show this with a picture. I don't need this word. Um, you know, oh, maybe this picture isn't saying exactly what it needs. Maybe I need a word here. You know what I mean? So, right. or, or a phrase. So it's sort of um, a back and forth, in out process with with text and pictures. And because I kind of switch up the art style for, um, I don't, I don't want to say most of my books, but kind of most of my books, I feel like that's what takes the longest is figuring out what art style goes with this text. Uh, Unless it's something that is, you know, kind of a sequel like Dog and Bear. I already know what the art style is for that. So that goes a lot faster. But it's it's really, really organic. Like it isn't, it isn't like I could say, oh, you know, I wake up at seven o'clock and have (laughs) breakfast and sit down in my studio at nine o'clock. And I guess nothing like that. It's very kind of almost maybe strange. I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) Not traditional, but it definitely works for for you and and your creativity, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, I remember um, you talking about your inspiration for Dog and Bear and how that was just, Oh, um, tell me the story behind that one. Had the story behind Dog and Bear. Mm-hmm. Um, that whole that whole book came about because um, my editor Neil Porter was visiting my house one day and he found um, a, a stuffed an old stuffed bear sitting in a tall chair in my living room. I had I had stepped out of the room for a second to answer the phone or something, and when I came back, he was holding the bear and asking me what the story behind that bear was, and there really wasn't one. And so he said, well, then write one. And, I, and I, you know, so I set out to write one. And um, and as I was, you know, kind of standing there later that night after he had left and everybody in my house had gone to sleep, I had I was sort of standing there talking to this stuff there. And 
and trying to figure out what its story was. And then it was at that moment that um, my my dachshund Copper kind of walked over to me and gave me a strange look. And um, and I just you know at, at what I was what I was saying to the stuff there when Copper came over to me were, were things like. What are you doing in this chair? How are you going to get down from this chair? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and um, and that's when I kind of just put it together. The coppers, you know, long-bodied dachshund. Maybe it would be. Maybe he's going to get the do- the bear down from the chair, and and that's sort of how the first um, the first story came about. I really love this series because it's so fun and and it has that natural interaction between these two characters, and I just I just love yeah. that story. Yeah, and it was really important too, like with any with any um with any story with characters that to to really um decide upon what who they are and what they're what they're all about, what they're like, what they what they would say, how they would react. So there you know, in the very beginning I had um gone into my journal and done a character study on uh, character studies on both these characters. And during a phone call, I was reading it to Neil, and uh, that's when we both realized that Bear, Bear's character resembles Neil and Dog's <laughs> character resembles me, even though he was based on Copper. You know, he kind of resembles me. So so ultimately, writing all the rest of the stories, I think there are 12 stories to date, um, it, it was just so, it was such a pleasure. Not, I wouldn't say any, you know, I wouldn't say easy, but but easier because I know them so well. You know, it's really interesting um, that you mentioned this interaction with your editor. I'm just curious, in what other ways does he help you in this process of writing and creating books? Well, you know, like I said in the beginning that it's such an organic process. It's also an organic process with him where we will... um, you know, we'll just kind of text each other and talk back and forth in little bits at a time often and, and you know, not, not like formal meetings. I mean, every once in a while mm-hmm. we will have formal meetings, but for the most part it's, it's just very um, kind of back and forth kind of thing. And there are a few things that he's in the habit of doing, probably with all of his uh, authors, I'm not sure, but definitely with me, um, that really, that really are smart. Like he, he'll say to me, um, in the very beginning, you know, simple question: What is this book about? And it's funny. That sounds like such a simple question, but mm-hmm. forcing yourself as an author to identify what am I trying to say? What is this book about? Is no matter how many books you've done, like it's kind of like, oh yeah, I need to really. I need to understand what exactly what I'm trying to say, you know, and because otherwise you, you can kind of meander and get a little lost or off topic or mm-hmm. whatever it is the book is about. So that's really smart. And then the other thing he's in the habit of doing, which I think is one of the things that makes him such a brilliant editor, is that he will say it needs something. And he, he pretty much never says what, what the something is, even if he knows. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he doesn't know. Maybe sometimes he does. I don't. I don't even know. But I think that's so smart because even if you know, even if he does know what something needs, he, he'll kind of like nudge you along until you figure it out. And that's important because otherwise, I think for an, an editor, um, there's always a danger of a book getting uh, away from an from an author. You right. know, I, I don't mean intentionally, but just. You know, it, it's still got to be the author's book. So if an editor is kind of 
forcing you to say, you know, to, to question, well, what does it need? Where is it, you know, where where am I not making my point? Where is it confusing? Where, you know, questions like that, and then and then doing the work of figuring it out, it remains the author's book. And I think that's what that that's what makes him such a brilliant editor. That's one of the many things, of course, but um, but it's a really big thing, right? That he it, he it, makes you shine, really. Yeah, he makes you he makes you just you know just find get to the get to the heart of things without specifically saying what needs to be done and um that's really really important i i appreciate that very much well it's certainly a process and a relationship that works between the two of you because uh i i just love um all of your work Oh, Laura, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you so much for being here. I had so much fun. Laura Vaccaro Seeger, children's book author and illustrator, shares the inspiration behind her book series, Dog and Bear. Up next, Rachel chats with English professor Jonathan Alexander, who writes frequently about fan fiction. Alexander gives us more insight into the genre, which involves fans who expand existing fiction with additional characters and settings. Alexander is Chancellor's Professor of English, Education, and Informatics at the University of California, Irvine, where he is also founding director of the Center for Excellence in Writing and Communication. He's the author, co-author, or editor of 13 books, including Writing Youth, Young Adult Fiction as Literacy Sponsorship. Here's Rachel and Jonathan Alexander. We're on the phone today with Jonathan. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you. Jonathan, you have a very fun interest that I am excited to share with our listeners today, and that has to do with the writing of fan fiction. So to start out, why don't you define that for us? Sure. So fan fiction is the kind of fiction that's generally written by young people, but not always. There are a lot of older writers of fan fiction, and folks will take characters or situations or or story worlds that already exist, generally in published fiction or sometimes in uh, television narratives and in movies. And then people will write their own stories with those characters or with those situations or set in those worlds. So some of the, the first real fan fiction that began to attract the notice of scholars was fan fiction about Star Trek. Uh, in which people would write and share these stories about uh, the adventures of the various characters on the Starship Enterprise, taking those characters, putting them in different situations, sometimes inventing and adding new characters. And it was a way for people to keep those stories alive, to keep them moving. Many times book series, television series, movies, they end. Uh, They might go on for a few iterations, but they end. Fan fiction was a way for people to keep the narratives, to keep the characters that they had fallen in love with, to keep them going. I just completed reading John Green's newest novel, Turtles All the Way Down, and there's a character in that book that writes fan fiction for the Star Wars universe. And it it very much captures that essence that you're talking about, about taking the characters that they love and keeping them going, but also taking them in new directions that might not have been in the, the original stories. So why do you think people do this? What, what is it that makes them so eager to continue these stories and to reinvent these stories in that way? First is, is as I said, 
people fall in love with characters or they fall in love with particular worlds and they want to keep exploring those characters and exploring those worlds. And so first and foremost, I think fan fiction really speaks to a, to a deep love of invention, imagination, and creativity, that we respond to the stories that, are, that other people put out there, and we want to be part of those stories. What then happens is something which is interesting. So just as you said that the character in, in John Green's book writes fan fiction for the Star Wars universe, she doesn't just work with those characters. She, she creates other characters. She creates other situations. And so one of the things that we've been tracking in the development of fan fiction is how different writers will create whole new situations or introduce characters into worlds that they want to see. So I just finished uh, drafting an article with my colleague, Rebecca Black, about autism in Harry Potter fan fiction. Now, when you look at the Harry Potter world that J.K. Rowling created, we don't really see any characters who we might immediately identify as autistic or as neurodiverse. So what fans have done, fans who are interested in thinking about autism, who may have uh, a brother or a sister who is autistic or who themselves might be uh, neurodiverse, they write fan fiction that includes characters that are autistic or neurodiverse. Or they take a pre-existing character and then try to explain that character and his or her behavior through the lens of neurodiversity. And so this is a way for people to feel that their interests, that what they're trying to understand becomes part of the world that they already love. And that's especially true of something like Harry Potter, where you've got a school situation, or you've got Hogwarts. And so what is it like for a young person to go to school who might be autistic? By writing the story of that young person who goes to Hogwarts, uh, she might discover, he might discover that their autism is a form of magical ability. So it's a way for them to kind of think about their world in different ways and to grapple with issues that are important to them. It seems to me that looking at it that way, that there is this kind of sense of maybe psychological catharsis that comes through these kinds of writings, particularly for kids Absolutely. when they're trying to explore the world around them, that that they're helping them to kind of mentally deal with the world around them in, in a way that makes sense to them. So do you see that as well? Oh, absolutely. So one of the things that interests me about fan fiction is that it doesn't exist just as text-based forms of fiction. Young people will also create their own media. Uh, they'll create various book trailers, or they'll actually create little movies in which they extend the narratives or replay the narratives of some of their favorite series. So a good example that I'm thinking of to describe what you just said is some videos that I saw made by young people, the so people in high school, who worked with the Hunger Games narrative. And a lot of these uh, little movies are really interesting in that they play out the scenes uh, in the actual game, so in the arena, and they, they're they often, you know, sort of cute and, and cheesy as students battle each other, young people battle each other in, the, in these games. But some of the most affecting fan fiction forms will introduce other themes that you don't get in the original Hunger Games series. So one of the themes that is particularly interesting to me is that the kids who were put into the Hunger Games in this one set of videos uh, were Christian-identified. And the videos traced out how they used their Christianity to help them survive the game. 
and understand what was happening to them. And I thought it was sort of a remarkable testimony to, to the power of faith, uh, and it's kind of religious faith, in order to survive a terrible circumstance. Now, that's not a thing that you actually get at all in the original Hunger Games books or films, but it's something that these young people felt was important to them, and they wanted to recast that Hunger Games narrative in a way that made sense to them and became a testimony then to their religious convictions. And to me, that seems a powerful way in which fan fiction, fan-produced media, allows young people to, to sort of see the world uh, in ways that make sense to them. That is such a powerful example, and I appreciate you sharing that. It it does offer this sense that, that there's something more here than just rehashing a story or trying to build something. They they actually are taking this and creating their own new things. As a, right. as a professor of writing, how do you look towards that, though, as as something to help them with those kinds of literacy skills, the writing skills mm. or the media literacy types of skills? Is that something that really helps and connects children to that form of literacy? I think so. I think any kind of writing is a response. And this is going to be a, such a bold statement, but I'm going to say it anyway. Any kind of writing is a response to the world. And so as scholars, when we write our various analyses, we create knowledge, we're generally responding to something that has gone before. We're, we're taking something that we already know and trying to extend it, trying to expand it, or maybe even trying to critique it uh, and to chart a different path. And I think that what fan fiction at its best does is precisely that work of extension or expansion, and sometimes even of critique where people take what has gone before, they take the stories, the narratives that are already circulating, and figure out, well, what's missing here? Or how else can I understand this world? Or what else can I do with this narrative in order to think about things or to feel things that are important to me and to make room for my vision of the world or for the way that I see things? And to me, while it's not scholarly, it's not something we identify as scholarly, I think those moves are very, very similar to what we do as scholars all the time. I I couldn't agree more. I do think that that kind of processing is very much a problem-solving extension. You you take a character, you take a world, and there's a problem, and you figure out how to solve it through the narrative. And that is a very beneficial thing for kids to engage Absolutely. in that kind of problem-solving endeavor. Yes. So as you work with all of this fan fiction, what do you think is the the true connections that take it kind of maybe from this sense of a kitschy pop culture realm into something that does seem a lot more serious and important? Where does that line, where do we draw that line between kitsch pop culture and, and something that really is extending our understanding mm-hmm. of the world? Oh, it's such a great question. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Henry Jenkins, who's the media theorist at USC, who, is, who has written so much over the course of his career about fan fiction. And he wrote several years ago that what's so important about Harry Potter fan fiction is that in, in this country, you've got an entire generation of folks, maybe even nearly two generations, who grew up with those books and with those movies. And so that... That narrative, the Harry Potter world, those characters, they become part of a larger generational mythology. 
that young people share and that they have in common. And they can talk to each other about these characters and about the situations. And so for me, and I think Jenkins would agree, I think this is what he's getting at when he calls Harry Potter the sort of mythology of, of a couple of generations of young people's lives. It's important that people have that common ground. Our, our world is so diverse. There's so many different competing narratives about about how we should live, about uh, how we should think politically, how we should interact with each other, that those moments when we actually have a common story, where we can connect with each other over the love of a common narrative, that seems to me a real precious gift. That is so insightful. Thank you for sharing that, because it really is our modern mythology that brings us together as a culture and as a society and and disparate groups of people bringing us together in great connections. So to end up our conversation today, Jonathan, I'm going to ask you the hard question. So are you a writer of fan fiction or are you just a writer about fan fiction? Uh, I, I am afraid I am not a writer of fan fiction, uh, I, I call myself a non-creative person. <laughs> all of my all of my creativity is really in thinking about thinking about the cultural production that other people engage in. Uh, but I I'd like to think that that's important work. That what's what's important is that we document the the great amount of creativity and ingenuity that people put into their fan fictions and their fan media production. And fan fiction, if, if any parent uh, or guardian is worried about a young person's involvement in fan fiction, I'd say you really should put your mind at ease. That fan fiction is, is a powerful way for young people to, to train their imaginations, to, to think critically, to, to extend their sense of, of what's possible in the world. Um, and it's also just good fun. And that's a perfect note to end on. It is just good fun at the end. So thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your unique form of creativity with us today, Jonathan. (laughs) Thank you. Jonathan Alexander, English professor at University of California, Irvine, talking about fan fiction. We finish up today's show with two poems. William Wordsworth's I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud, read by BYU Radio assistant producer, Ciara Hewlett, and Nature by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, read by Classical 89 announcer Peg Woodruff. I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud by William Wordsworth. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high o'er vales and hills, when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils, beside the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze, continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle on the Milky Way. They stretched in never-ending line along the margin of a bay. Ten thousand saw I at a glance, tossing their heads in sprightly dance. The waves beside them danced, but they outdid the sparkling waves in glee. A poet could not but be gay in such a jocund company. I gazed and gazed, but little thought what wealth the show to me had brought. For oft, when on my couch I lie in vacant or in a pensive mood, They flash upon that inward eye, which is the bliss of solitude, and then my heart with pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils. Nature by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow As a fond mother, when the day is o'er, leads by the hand her little child to bed, half willing, half reluctant to be led, and leave his broken playthings on the floor, 
still gazing at them through the open door, nor wholly reassured and comforted by promises of others in their stead, which, though more splendid, may not please him more. So nature deals with us, and takes away our playthings one by one, and by the hand leads us to rest so gently that we go scarce knowing if we wish to go or stay, being too full of sleep to understand how far the unknown transcends the what we know. Two Poems I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud by William Wordsworth read by Sierra Hewlett and Nature by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow read by Peg Woodruff Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio Sirius XM Channel 143 on the TuneIn app and at byuradio.org.